Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. He had this very um, very funny habit of going through your record collection, finding all the records he didn't like. And uh, I lived with him for, for several years. And, uh, in fact, 99% of the records I owned he didn't like. So he'd pick out various ones. He would write on the back uh, notes, apparently from the people who, who wrote them, terribly kind of respectful notes saying how they're devoted to me and thanks for my love and support. And we were moving house about, uh, I don't know, 25 years ago or something. And we had these boats around shifting all the quite substantial record collection up to the roof. And I suddenly heard these boats go, oh, I can't believe this, Derek. <laughs> this, this guy knows all the stars. And I thought, oh, my God, what's this? You know, listen to this one, all right? It says, um, thanks for your love and support. Couldn't have made it without you. Elton John. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, oh, no. You know, it's, it's, I found another one here. You've been our inspiration. We owe you everything. It's only the Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, I found an even better one. You were right about telling me to leave those losers. I'm better on my own. Thumbs aloft to Paul McCartney, right? And so I just, I just hadn't got the heart to go up to the attic, obviously, and say, this, is, this isn't real. This you know, is written this, by this, Tom Hibbert. You know, it's all written by Tom Hibbert in the same <laughs> handwriting. Interesting. I was surprised you didn't stumble across that. But I love the idea that he just sort of, everything in his world was just turned upside down. All the things that really mattered, you know, he thought were terrible. You know, he hated, uh, you know, things like Live Aid and uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. But he really liked things like, um, you know, Ronnie Biggs and uh, Gary Glitter. <laughs> he liked yeah. failures. He liked real uh, total failures, you know. I, I thought that was very funny about him, you know. And uh, I had to, to, to talk at... Um, his funeral, he, his funeral was about, I suppose, about a month ago. In fact, I've written an article about him in, um, in the next issue of Word, too. And I've, I try, I've tried to, to, to write something completely different in Word from what I wrote in the, about him in The Guardian and from what I said at the, at the funeral. But one thing I had to say at the funeral, because a lot of the people in the audience had, had, been, um, had lived with him, was about his terrible cooking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, 70s, you remember. We've got 70s Johnson, by the way, is, is, uh, is at the wheels of steel here. Uh, and, uh, and David Hepworth. And it's the, it's the word podcast, isn't it? Indeed, Fraser's yeah. probably it's listening. He's in, uh, he's in New Fraser's Zealand watching Wales. Under. He's down under. And, um, yeah, Tommy, I lived with Tommy for about two years in the most abject, utter poverty and misery of this squat in, called the Roach Motel in, uh, in, um, 
in uh, in Dalston, and we lived in another horrible place in in Leytonstone. In fact, he had a thing. Roach would tell us he had a strange attitude towards cockroaches. He thought they were pets. Oh, right. <laughs> so yeah, cockroaches and he, he not only thought they were pets, but he, he insisted that one of them should be addressed as Julian. So there was a cockroach predicate called Julian. That went down very badly. See, when you said but, Roach Motel. Yeah, Roach, well, it's called well, the Roach Motel. I was thinking you, Roaches from, yeah. Oh, right, oh, hey. Oh, oh, oh right, you know, OK. You know, oh, you, yeah, well, that's very 70s, very deep. But, uh, you know, tell me how this is the worst cook. And you know that sometimes you live with people when you're a kind of student and they cook badly, deliberately, so that they don't get asked to cook anymore. They kind of burn everything. I think, oh, we won't ask Derek to do any more cooking. It's easy, useless. But Tommy Edge just was absolutely rotten. And he had three signature dishes. He called them signature dishes, which I felt I mentioned this, I think, in the, um, in the, in the word piece. One was his burgers. He said, I'm doing burgers tonight. And burgers was, was instant sage and onion Paxo stuffing, <laughs> moistened with tap water, right? And then, yeah, then, yeah, then flash fried in margarine. As well. He patted them into a burger shape. Right? No, it gets worse. He, uh, he also had a thing called... Um, he used to do his pancakes, which were like normal pancake ingredients. You know what that involves. It involves milk, right? But instead of milk, he'd use Martini Bianco. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> and utterly disgusting. Oh, he just did this to see how you put up. Well, I Really, didn't he? I don't know. He, might he, he, he had a pe- pea curry. He pea was curry testing was. out your, uh, you know, your legendary ability to look on the bright side. I think he, maybe he, he regarded was. you as a personal challenge, I think. Yeah, I think that we had a... We, we, when we first met at New Music News, we had this absolutely, incredibly intense fascination for each other because I'd never met anybody so pessimistic, <laughs> fatalistic, really, and so shrugging and, and morose and disenchanted. He just believed that everything seemed <laughs> was end, going to end in absolute utter abject misery. Remind us, how old was he at the time? Uh, he was 28, I was 26, yeah. And, uh, and, and I, 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 I think he thought was just unbearably cheery. You know, this, this idea that it was, it's going to be great! <laughs> so, what we do now, I went apparently come into a room and sort of rubbing my hands, going, great, so let's write something. Oh, God, we've got to write something, you know. And uh, he was very much, so we had a very intense kind of fascination for each other. But no, he's a good fellow. Another, another uh, culinary delight because he's pea curry. And he occasionally, not in my house, but in another house, he used to leave a note uh, when he was living with a, a girl called Jane and a guy called Juggins. And old Jugs would come home and there'd be a, a, a little sign saying, pea curry in the fridge, exclamation mark, <laughs> meaning I've cooked. But his idea of pea curry was to open a can of processed peas, you know, from right. Tesco's, and then stir in a mixture of, of mustard powder and Tabasco sauce. So just, effectively, it's just a cold <laughs> can of peas with mustard powder and Tabasco. Pea curry. What's that the idea? It's fundamentally wrong, isn't it? Because it's pea curry. How, how good can that ever be? <laughs> no, no, it's already quite limited because it's yeah. pea curry. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not chicken <laughs> curry. It's made by the greatest so chef in the world. No one's going to make a good pea curry. Yeah, yeah. It, pea curry's ready. You know, I know. Don't, don't come running. Do I know. People used to uh, correspond word readers, uh, used to ask regular intervals over the last ten years or whatever, why don't you get Tom to write stuff for the magazine but he was he, he, he was very ill i had some nice emails from people uh, all the time actually and then some of them are people who listen to the podcast and they've responded to me and um, said thanks for letting me know what was going on and when i read the obituary i kind of understood but he was very ill and um you know without wishing to go into into all, all the details he, he had a terrible coincidence of illnesses one was a, 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 pan- a pancreat acute pancreatitis extremely serious illness and the other was pneumonia and uh, he, he was terribly ill. It was, um, and he, in fact, he was unconscious for the first 12 days he was in hospital, uh, in a coma. Uh, there's no way around that. And um, he was in intensive care for three months. I wasn't allowed to see him, actually, for those three months. Uh, but his uh, wife and um, sisters and mother and father were. And uh, when he came round from that illness, he never quite was the same person again. Mm. I mean, it, and uh, I made this point at the funeral. Uh, very sad. A long period of time to elapse, 14 years of him not being... Um, 
quite the same. So the reason he didn't work was he wasn't really capable of working. He wasn't quite up to it. He was a bit, mm. a bit, a bit crooked, as he oh. used to put it. He used to describe himself as the biggest crock on the block to me. And rather proud of it, I think, actually. <laughs> His friend Juggins was always competing to be a bigger crock, but I think Tommy was uh, way ahead on points after this. But anyway, so that was why he didn't write. But it, I tell you something was really... I felt very strongly about it, very grateful, was that when he died... Um, you know, The Guardian made this announcement, and that was uh, sent all over their um, their website. And there was a terrific response, on the Word website particularly, and on several other websites that I looked at, and uh, real outpourings of affection for him and uh, the stuff he wrote in the 1980s and 1990s. And uh, I, I, it was lovely to go back and reread some of that. I wasn't very chuffed about how many people had copies of the book put out by our publisher at the time, uh, a com- compendium of Who the Hell, the, the series of pieces he wrote. Mm. And uh, oh, yeah. I suppose how many people actually had copies of it and, and uh, had, had brought, taken it down from the shelf and dusted it down and, and yeah. reread his classic Roger Waters or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I did think that was great. And uh, I was very touched. And I do genuinely, firmly believe, um, and I'm not just saying that because I was his editor a lot of the time and I worked with him and I was his friend and sort of his agent somewhere. But I do believe that he was a very, very influential writer, actually. And uh, uh, that he, he uh, took a kind of satirical view, which is very, very valued and, and quite missed now. And I think that he, his uh, lack of reverence was uh, extremely um, uh, emblematic of the 1980s, that you could do that. It was such a great mm-hmm. economic boom. And the music industry was so colourful and huge and massive that it's the odd ego could take a little right. bit of... Yeah, it was. And, uh, it was very, yeah. uh, it'd be hard to do that now. And I thought that was very significant. Um, and another thing that I think he was responsible for, um, for better or worse, actually, was I think he's very responsible for helping create a kind of uh, consensus and orthodoxy in the rock music press, particularly in the rock music monthlies, about what was good and bad. When I first met him, he only liked certain groups. And they were, in fact, the Grateful Dead, uh, Iggy Pop. You can imagine now what they're going to be. Rocky Rocky, Obviously Rocky Erickson. Obviously the residents. You know exactly what I'm going to say. (laughs) You know, it just, you know, it just, um, you know, uh, Moby Grape, Vanilla Fudge. I don't have to, you know, the kinks. I mean, just, you know, you can tell Julian Cope. I mean, you just know just what aesthetic that I'm, I'm dealing with. Contrary. Uh, my, my, yeah. my abiding memory of Hibbs, actually, is, is my wife's birthday party years ago, where we had, we carefully put together loads of <laughs> Oh, music. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and on, on this tape, or whatever it was, was Hang On Sloopy by the McCoys. Yeah. Which cleared the dance floor, apart from yeah. you and him. Oh, well, that's a great song. <laughs> that's a great song. He was doing his strange yeah. kind of satirical twist yeah, in the yeah. middle of that. It was the only record he would, do. Yeah, with he a would agree be- to Yeah, beaker of electric soup in one hand and a massive Marlboro in the other. But I do think it was quite interesting, you know, that he, he a lot of the reason he was a bit grudging and a bit um, uncooperative about music is that he only really liked very few things. And I think, again, I, I repeat, for better or worse, a lot of rock critics are the same, actually. I'm not a great believer in this. I have very, very broad taste, and uh, I believe in all, in all comers, actually, in equal opportunities to some extent. But uh, he kind of felt that he gave me the Big Star two albums, because he was horrified that I didn't own the two first two Big Star albums, which, let's be honest, are great. Yeah, yeah. They are great records. Um, you know, September Girls, these are brilliant songs. Mm. But he was so horrified that I didn't own them, he actually thought, for ten minutes, he, he was on the point of moving out of the house. <laughs> I said, I said man, man, we... we, we We've moved in now, you know, everybody's here, we're all happy, you know everybody, they like I you. Can't stand this any longer. It's just, it's just Big Star. I said, what do you mean, just Big Star? You know, these things so are really people, again, very reverent about the very small cross. number of Yeah, so when you think that it, you really think that, you know, September Girls, uh, 
that's spelled with a U, of course, 70s, as you'd know, by Big Star is one of the greatest uh, record, if not the greatest record ever made, then you imagine that from there stems a, a great pyramid of, of ghastliness, where if he's advised to, you know, invited to go along and interview Duran Duran, he's not going to like him very much, is he? Because he's not part <laughs> of the great DNA and chemistry of, of the, the Himmet, well, uh, you know, one hemisphere. One final point. It, it, no doubt he's looking down when you were delivering your, your uh, oration. He's tipping ash all over me. <laughs> Spilling a what would he have said? Kind of Cronenberg. What would he have said? Well, he would have been he would have been embarrassed. The one bit he would have liked is that his wife chose. To, <laughs> I don't want to just sound immodest because it's not meant to be immodest. It's just a reverse. His wife wanted some music played, and uh, she went through. I've got a lot of recorded stuff on my computer, and very good quality actually. And we formed a duo at one point called, called Coffee and Cream, <laughs> spelt with K O double F double E Cream K double. And when we were asked, we, we played three concerts, uh, all at the 12-bar club, and when we were asked once by somebody else why we were called Coffee and Cream, he had a really good answer, uh, which is that he said, I'm called Roger Coffee, and he's called David Cream. So we thought, let's form a group. <laughs> why not? I'm brilliant. What are the chances of that? A guy yeah. called Coffee means a guy called Cream. Which I thought was a very funny answer. But um, anyway, it, it, she chose a, a piece of music of, of us playing, uh, in fact, it was a Moby Grape song. And uh, I think he would have liked that. And the funniest thing was that uh, was at the beginning of it. Uh, I we're obviously so nervous about performing the next night that I'm practicing what I'm going to say on stage. You know, this was a long time ago, about 15, 20 years ago. So, so you I played this at the service. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm practicing <laughs> what I'm going to say on stage, which is really rather sort of sweet, really. And I'm going, hi. <laughs> I go, I go. Here's a song by Moby Grape. And Tom goes, it's not a song by Moby Grape. It's a song we wrote on the way to the gig, which is this hilarious thing. I was in another terrible group with him, you know. And he used to go on stage and say that he'd written all the songs. He thought it was really funny. So, this is a song called Well Respected Man. I wrote this this afternoon. <laughs> We're never going to get away with this. <laughs> this is a song called The Passenger, all right? <laughs> I wrote it. Eventually he'd say, and Iggy Pops covered it very badly. <laughs> so Coffee and Cream performed at Tom's funeral. Well, quite on tape they performed. Right. And it was very sweet because his wife Elise is in the background <clears> and uh, she's, you can hear her. Very, very, very good recording, actually. My Sony professional, you remember those? And go. in the background she's tinkering around the kitchen. She's making some supper. And at the end of this Moby Grape song called Naked If I Want To, I, I can't imagine that many people listening would know it. Actually, it's a lovely song. But anyway, there's two very short verses. There's a little big break. So at the end of the first verse, she thinks the song's ended. She goes, she goes, superb! Like that, very kindly. Like, you know, and then we go into the second verse. Now, at the end of the next, she goes, anyone want some bread and cheese? <laughs> and basically what she's doing is, please make this end. For God's sake, there must be better things to do than these two guys singing this terrible moment. Great, so we should be eating some food. Pea curry, ready. So, pea curry. So yes, the pea curry's ready. So I think he would have liked that. But right. He was a terrific guy. And uh, I'm just, I have to say that I'm so pleased that so many people wrote in, to me particularly, actually, who knew him very well, and expressed their sorrow and there's, there's a piece about him in the new words I say um, with a great picture take, taken by me this is, this is a little picture you have a look at the picture anyone listening and uh, it's just interesting a guy who positioned himself so clearly that in the background of the picture is something that he absolutely loves and something he absolutely hates to express his personality have a look anyway this is a junction in the word podcast it separates that bit from this next bit so, Mark, we haven't had our uh, we haven't had our discussion on the George Harrison film. Oh we, yes, yes. We haven't really put our heads together on this no, because you saw it absolutely ages ago I on the big screen. So long ago, I can't remember. More recently on DVD. 
Yeah, and, and it's out. I just had a text from my niece at, uh, at uh, Sheffield University in her first term saying she'd been to see it in the cinema. So it's obviously out and how much she loved it. So she's 19. Loves the Beatles. Her favourite group. So it's, it's, I mean, the, the amazing thing is it's on, on DVD. It's on two DVDs. Yeah. It's three and a half hours. It's, I thought maybe it's 340. Was it 340? So. <laughs> I, I went with my old friend and neighbour, Robin Hitchcock, to see it. And uh, after two hours, they, there's an interval and they gave us a, a, a cup of tea and some biscuits. And he turned to me and said, I don't think I've ever been so happy. I said, why? I said, well, someone's given me a cup of tea and some biscuits. We've still got two more hours of the Beatles to come. His eyes were filling up. The old lower lips started to wobble. Well, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I felt so you well. can't help but just thinking about the, um, the absences and the, and the omissions and oversights and so forth. I've got a go little on. list here. Uh, go on, go on, go on, go on. That's interesting. Well, I tell you what fascinates me, because they only pop up once in the film, quite near the beginning, are his brothers. Yes, there, you know, George Harrison, two brothers. Yes, he had a sister, two elder brothers. Sister who, older sister as well, yeah, who emigrated to the United States. Yeah, she just yeah. kind of just as he joined the Beatles. Yeah, which meant that he he had a, a relation in America which nobody had in those days. You know, mm. and um, but two older brothers. So these two guys appear who are presumably. 70 or something like that. Can't be They'd be in their 70s now. They're quite a lot older than him, actually. Well, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, you know, they're, and they're, they're just two regular blokes from Liverpool. And and they they say a few things about him. But you think... I feel like saying, stop, I want to hear more. Oh, no, it's fantastic. I want to hear more because, you know, when you've raised kids like we have, what you realise is everything you ever want to know about anybody... You could know when they're five years old, really. It's all there. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more because the and, older and, and you, you get, <laughs> the older I get, the more the first thing I want to know about somebody is just where they come from, what the family says. Yeah, yeah. Because that's going to tell you so much. Absolutely. And the interesting thing about the Beatles is that well, we've had the conversation about the class difference yeah, the Beatles yeah. many times on the on the podcast, and of course the age differences. Uh, but the thing that struck me in that is the is the kind of domestic setup difference, which is that Harrison, the great team player, by the way, the great team player, several people, members of Monty Python, uh, say, and Eric Clapton, I think, say later on, he had to be in a band. All his collections of friends, his gardeners, yeah, they were his motorcycle people, he liked the Monty Pythons. Yeah. He was in groups. He just he loved being in a group. He didn't really like being leader of the um, Travelling Wilburys. He didn't really like being the leader, but he liked being in a group. He was happy in a group. And he comes from a family with... Um, as you say, three brothers and sisters. McCartney comes from a family with one brother and one parent uh, after the age of uh, 14 and very much in charge of his brother, so he's very much a kind of sole figure in that house. Uh, Lennon, obviously, you know, comes from a very extraordinary family of some stepsisters he doesn't really know, mm. but brought up by the aunt. And Starkey comes from a family of only child with um, whose father has uh, disappeared very, very early on. And so... Harrison is the one who has the understanding of how the dynamic of a group works. And I just, I just it, well, so I wanted interesting. to hear more from his brothers. Yeah. I wanted to hear these blokes in their 70s in Liverpool. What do they think of the world? What, you know, yeah. what, what, what do they remember about him? And, of course, it's sort of glossed over. Things I did like, the thing, I think my favourite bit in the entire film, and, and God bless Tony Wilson for making sure this happened. Oh, I know that, yeah. He's yeah. obviously in 1975... George Harrison goes to what is clearly Granada, Granada. Television yeah. to plug some solo record he's got out. And Tony Wilson, who appears in this film in the background in kind of voluminous flares. Yeah, and so forth, long hair. Um, shows him the old clip of the, of the Beatles doing This Boy on Granada's People and Places, which yeah. was their kind of local magazine programme in, in the early 60s. I remember seeing this. And 
it's fascinating in all sorts of ways because he's shown it on a huge, great. I think they're called telecine editing machines. They are big because screen it's the with only the way that they could yeah. play it. Yeah. Nobody had a, they didn't have a cassette that they yeah. could shove mm. in. And so an engineer, an editor, lines this up, and George Harrison taken into this room, and he sits there. And it's 1975, and he's watching the Beatles in, what, 1963, 64, 63, OK? It's as if he's peering back into the Middle Ages. Yeah. It's just extraordinary. Because he's clearly not seen the Beatles for absolutely years. No, that, well, you he know, never have seen that. Whereas before. nowadays, everything is just instant recall. You can, you know, click YouTube, yeah. you can get absolutely anything. You remind yourself any sporting event, any culture event, whatever. Those days, you couldn't. And so he leans towards it. He's absolutely rapt, isn't he, looking at it. And then as they do the backing vocals, he kind of leans in and does he, a bit of the backing vocals. He leans in and sings and he goes, oh, it's a pretty good song. It's a good it's song. A good it's song. quite a good yeah. song, this, you know. Yeah. I thought it was... And it's just an amazing, what a Very magical moment Very of film that yeah. is. Just watching an older guy looking at his younger yes. self. Yeah. With a load of people watching the older guy looking at his yes. younger self. And, and you're, one of them. you're also yes. the old, looking yeah, at yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's an extraordinary put. experience. Yeah. It was fantastic. I also thought, I tell you what I really like, and he's always good. He always gets trotted out for these things. Eric Clapton. <laughs> Eric Clapton is fantastic. Eric Clapton's My always got something to say. Goodness, and fantastic. it's always interesting. Because he's just got the distance on them, hasn't he? Yeah. But yeah, I think about Eric Clapton is he's incredibly honest. Um, yes. I have to say this is probably any, anyone I've ever interviewed who's ever been through all sorts of um, uh, addictions and therapy, Elton John and people like that, are completely transparent. You ask them a question, they're, they're encouraged to be. They're encouraged to be trans- part of their recovery. Yeah. And there's a lovely bit where he talks about being in the Yardbirds, I think, and they're on the bottom of the bill at the, one of the Christmas shows at the House of Odeon. And he says, I was suspicious of the group, which is a brilliant word to use. What he thinks is... They have a magic. He describes them, I think, as one body with eight arms or something. It's just like one person. He said they had a magic that was so, so um, inscrutable and so enviable that he felt really threatened by it, I think. He doesn't actually say that, but that's the impression. Another lovely bit at the end where he's asked uh, whether or not he might, would would he ever have thought of joining the group? And he laughs, he goes, yes. (laughs) 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 But he's got, and then there's a marvellous bit. Oh, Eric Clapton is superb in this whole film. There's a lovely bit where they talk about, of course, the controversy of... um, the kind of wife swapping, which when I was a kid, I don't know, you, know, you didn't know anything about these things. You think, wow, that must be a bit rough. Someone steals your wife. Well, God, that didn't, wasn't what happened at all. It's like Harrison and Patty Boyd have fallen out big time. Partly because Harrison is crumpeteering from Britain, <laughs> isn't he? He's just... He's world class. He really is. And uh, so she's pretty fed up. So when she hooks up with, with Eric, he's, uh, he's still recording. He's still got the old levels going up. When he hooks up with Eric, um, you know, she hooks up with Eric, rather, then he, he's kind of like, there's that really brilliant thing where Eric goes, well, he didn't seem to mind. In fact, he looked at my date and said, well, do you want to swap? And he said, it's, it was the 60s, or in fact, that was the 70s. And that's a good point, well, too. The two really the, telling bits there were that Paul McCartney is... <laughs> what was George like? He said, he was a red-blooded male, yeah, yeah, and he yeah. liked what red-blooded males yeah, like. Yeah. And he looks at the camera, and you thought, if any rock star could point out that most rock stars are philanderers, Paul McCartney can do it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Because he doesn't have a reputation for being like no, that at all. No, you know. at all. And, and also Olivia, Harrison's widow, turns up later in the film. She's very good, actually. I, really I thought good. that the most outstanding bit is actually her talking about the attack, yeah. oh, which took incredible. place in 1999 or 2000, whenever it was. Oh. Uh, she just recounts the thing, and it's absolutely gripping. Anyway, she says... People ask, what's the secret of a long, a long marriage? She says, don't get divorced. Don't get divorced. <laughs> 
Because she was clearly, you know, pushed towards it. Oh, I thought she was absolutely marvellous in that film. I really do. And I, you're right about the attack. I mean, anybody listening who doesn't know what happened, you know, somebody broke into Friar Park, a sort of lunatic, who she describes as being in a florid, psychotic state, which is a great phrase, actually, and uh, uh, lays about her husband with a poker. And her husband, and this I find very affecting, um, her husband defends himself by chanting mantras at his attacker. Where she didn't. And, you know, so that is... And that's not because he was cosseted and protected and surrounded by security. He was... That's genuinely the person he was. He genuinely believed that, that um, you know, the great, the great gods of the East were going to defend him. This proved to be untrue, and he was very badly beaten up by this guy and practically killed. She gets a poker, doesn't she? She gets a poker. And she goes, I don't know, just something I must have learned in baseball. Or no, she says, she she says, says <laughs> my dad was a baseball That's fan. right, yeah, that's it, yeah. And she says... He always taught me that in baseball, what matters is the follow-through. Yes, that was So you've put. got to follow through. She said, I felt, I felt him on my shoulder, sort of saying, don't throw like a girl. Yes. You know, so she was obviously capable, presumably for the only time in her life, of superhuman S- aggression. Enormous yeah. strength. Which, which yeah. must, have, must have taken terrible aggression. And actually, I have to say, it's very affecting this... Uh, moment in the film because uh, you get her voiced over at the end and you get for 15 seconds because I counted it, I was so astonished how long it was on the screen, the face of the attacker yeah. uh, two days after he'd been out of hospital after what happened to him and he uh, looks as being set about he by about looks 10 people. as though a bunch of, no disrespect to Millwall but Millwall <laughs> supporters have run into him <laughs> and I shouldn't have said that should I? <laughs> Moving on another great bit of the film I have to say which I completely forgot about till my niece reminded me was um, there's a bit where uh, they talk about the, the Hare Krishna fraternity with him. He's very, very close and remains close right up till, till the very end. And uh, he makes an album. Actually, I think Phil Spector might have produced it, actually. Around, uh, the yeah. Radha Krishna Temple record. And one of his great moments for, for Harrison is that they play this at half-time at Old Trafford, a Manchester United match, and that the crowd sing along. Yes. And, and, and the Hare Krishna guy points out, I said, well, to be fair, there were only three words, you know, Hare, Hare, Hare Krishna... Harry Redknapp, probably, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And the following week, they would have been singing along to My Ding a Ling yeah, with yeah. equal guts. Yeah, who's had all the five pies? Well, it doesn't matter, really but they were singing. Made any the idea there's 50,000 people singing Harry Krishna it was great. Because Phil Spector pops up, doesn't he? Uh, you know, interviewed, I don't know, about 10 years ago, probably something like that. God, he looks weird, doesn't he? Well, I, one of his selection of wigs and a strange shaped eye, Phil Spector's. Got. Everything about And he Phil talks Spectre's about bumping weird. into members of the Radha Krishna temple in the corridors at Apple and finding them vaguely frightening. You think, well, well they must hello. be really terrified. What of does he look like to look at Phil Spector? <laughs> <laughs> My God, he had different in, hair yesterday. I'd bump into somebody in a saffron dressing gown, you know, than, than Far Phil more. Spector. Chanting at me, <laughs> spooky. He does look very weird, and he also looks slightly kind of clammy. There was a great uh, arena documentary which we wrote about Word actually about three, three years ago, uh, a film when he was out of jail briefly or on remand or whatever it was. And again, very very clammy. And the, and the wigs he wears look like I'm going to be honest, they're like girls' hair, Dave. They do. They don't look like they look like girls' hair crossed with George Harris in 1964. So it's a little bit beetly, it's a little bit sculpted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. But it's very girly. Yeah. Yep. And then underneath is this was like frightening looking girl. Podgy-looking fellow, perspiring heavily. So anyway, there, there's the film. Lots of fun for all the family. Everybody will enjoy it. Out now. What's it called? It's called Living, Living in the Material, in, in the material world. world. It's really worth seeing, I think. Martin Scorsese film. The Word Podcast. From Marconi to DLT, 
to this. Now, Mark, do you remember when we started doing these podcasts? Can you remember the first it, one? It's The first one was in your... God, it must be about two or three years ago. Now. And it, it was, was in, 2006, Mark. Yeah, we were around your house and you said, let's go up to the attic and record a podcast. A concept I'd never I'd even heard of. And you had a laptop in, the, in your old greatcoat, the corner of your attic. And I can't now remember what we talked about, but uh, uh, probably Barclay James Harvest, I'm, I'm guessing. Was no, it that's it? just Steve your fantasy. fantasy that we talked fantasy, about yeah. Barclay James Harvest. String band. Um, no, but uh, anyway, that's, that was that the was first the one. That was the first one. And, and it became more sophisticated quite quickly. Yes, well, Matt Hall suggested that we ought to do them more, uh, more often, regularly. So we started doing them weekly. And Matt uh, kind of engineered them. He did his best to engineer them in, a, in very unsympathetic surroundings. Which he did. We were. We called that very echoey meeting room. The fourth <laughs> floor here. Where you hear the police. There's always somebody being arrested outside. There was always the sound of young... There was one of us and... going, oh, you'll never sell ice creams going that fast. You yep. know, hilarious yep. old Eric Morgan joke. Uh, but then <laughs> over the last 18 months, we've, we've moved into this, uh, this uh, the Mixmag fashion cupboard, which is quite a pleasant place to record, really, isn't it? And, well, th- this place with its um, uh, coat hangers full of bizarre and brightly coloured clothes, Fresh back from Ibiza has been the backdrop to recordings by Nick Lowe, by um, Neil Hannon, Neil Hannon, John Hyatt, yeah, Hogwash, Supergrass, Wilco Johnson. We've had them all. We're all in the our greats, cab. all the greats in the back of our we've podcast had them room. All in our cab. And so, you know, the, the thing about the podcast is it increases in popularity all the time. Uh, we've done over two hundred of them, actually. Is that right? Mike? I happen to know this because wow. Fraser and I, the, Fraser in New Zealand, and me at home have been slowly transferring all the back ones. Onto a, onto a new archive. Because what's going to happen in, in the future, starting next week, is a bit of a change in the way the podcast is disseminated. Uh, and so what's going to happen is the full podcast, which generally about 45 minutes or something of that kind, will only be available to those people who subscribe to the magazine. I'll explain how that's going to work in a moment. There will be a 15-minute taster of the podcast which will continue to be available on the same feed it's always been, so that'll go through iTunes or whichever podcast reader you use. But basically, if you're a subscriber, what you need to do is to go to wordpodcast.co.uk and you need to enter in there, you'll see how to do it, your subscriber number. Your subscriber number is printed clearly on the address label that comes with your subscription copy, which, you know, you might be getting this weekend. So this is the reason we're telling you this now, because you might want to note it down. You put that in. You only have to put it in once. You'll have instructions as to what to do. And then henceforth, you'll continue to get the full podcast absolutely, well, included in your subscription um, via that site. If you don't subscribe, well, now's the time to think about subscribing. And, uh, you know, we hope that you've got a lot of enjoyment and value from these 200 or so podcasts that we've and done in the past. It goes without saying, is a, I'm not just saying, it's a genuinely good deal, isn't it? My goodness. Man. Well, we'd like to think so. Oh, you know, you, so for a subscription, you get the magazine, you get the, magazine, you get you the get CD the with the magazine. You get priority booking on, on word events. events. You'll get the website. You'll get the podcast. Get the electronic edition too, don't you? You get the yeah. electronic edition. You can also get the uh, Fraser's weekly newsletter. All those things that go up to make the world of word. And uh, and terrible and, cliche, but for the, for the cost of you know two cups of coffee in Shaftesbury Avenue, isn't it? And, One uh, pint of beer. Actually. And the subscription is on special offer uh, between now and the end of the year for forty pounds. So uh, as I say, that's what's going to be happening from next week. And so if you want to go and you're a subscriber already and you want to go and register there, just go to wordpodcast.co.uk, 
put in your subscription number and you won't need to do it again. And if you don't have a subscription, there's the point at which you could buy one. And all of this is in the magazine too, actually, and in the letter that I've written with the Absolutely. So, you know, so it's all, all on paper. If there's anything anybody doesn't understand about it, uh, please get in touch, david at wordmagazine.co.uk, and we'll, uh, we're hoping to iron out any problems. The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So this week I went to later. To see Jules Holland. To I, I've been Jules Holland times. later. Good fun. To see, uh, they had Silver Seas, who are my personal favourites. Uh, they had uh, Laura Marling. Uh, and they had um, Miles Kane. And they had uh, Tony Bennett. Um, and it was absolutely fascinating to see the the contrast between all these people, you know, the, the, the kind of gladiatorial circle, you know. And it was, I was very fortunate. I was very well looked after by Mark Cooper, who looks after later. Um, and I was in the kind of VIP bit, right behind Tony Bennett and behind Tony nice. Bennett and his piano player. It's absolutely fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, it's so all the groups that are all kind of set up there and they've got their monitors and they've got that big line yeah. and they're all kind of organised. And Tony Bennett is, you know, he's a bloke with a, with a microphone, you know, if that. He doesn't actually need the microphone. No, you very, know, very Because he's got a piano player. Voice, yeah. mm. He's got a loud voice, yeah, yeah absolutely. He is, as he describes himself, a saloon singer. You know, <laughs> you know that's that's what he's always been. You know, so the guy who could sing above the sound of people, you above know, having cumbering. drinks. Yes. You know, in in a, in a Brooklyn bar or whatever. But um, so there he is. He's eighty-five years old. Jules was saying he thinks he's the oldest person to ever to have done later. Although there may have been a member of the Buena Vista Social Club at some point yes, in the past yes. who, who was around about that age. But eighty-five, you know, is a, is a fair old age, you know. And he's of that kind of Frank Sinatra generation, I suppose, slightly younger. Fought in the Second World War, I think. Tony he did. Bennett, yeah. And um, and to me, it was absolutely intriguing to see him, to watch him float through this whole thing because I was right behind him. And so you're looking at the world the way he looks at it. And Tony Bennett must have done a million TV shows of all kinds. He must have done kind of Ed Sullivan Live. He must have done Chindig. He must have done oh, well, strange Japanese talk shows. I've seen him on a show with Johnny Cash. I mean, with that, will, that kind of strained banter in between. He, he will, he, he'll just have to work out really quickly how to, how to adapt to your, to your surroundings. And uh, you know they do the they do a recorded program and then they do a live one you know so he got he did like two or three songs and he sang Sunny Side of the Street with Jules at the piano and oh, so great forth. I love that song and um, and gold course, dust on and, my feet oh, well there you go and, Ta- and Tony <laughs> Bennett has the has the uh, distinct advantage over most people who sing Sunny Side of the Street that in that he knew the guy who wrote it fantastic you know whereas you and I tend to think that songs like Sunny Side of the Street were discovered with like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something yeah right? they were actually written by a guy that Tony Bennett knew. brilliant. And um, and it was to me it was really educational contra- contrast between the way he performed and the way the rock bands performed, in that he was performing in a completely personal way. He was he was putting over a song, a song that was intelligible, that you'd probably heard before, "Sunny Side of the Street" or um, I can't remember the other one. The best is yet to come. Oh yeah, and. He was doing it very directly to the people in the room. If he'd been in here, he would have done it just the same to us. You know what I mean? It was the people in the room, and then it was down the camera to the people at home. Incredibly personally. Every syllable had to be intelligible. Every nuance had to absolutely get over. Because the whole point of it was to communicate with you. 
Contrast this with rock bands. Whether you like them or not, they don't do the same thing at all. Oh, no, they, they address their sound and into kind of middle distance. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, we do our thing. This is our wall of noise. This, you, you've got to untangle it. Make it's, sense of it. It's, it's, We're not going to help you, actually. Absolutely. We don't do anything to make life yeah. easier for you at all. There's no kind of explanation of where we're going with anything. Yeah, and if you don't like it, it's your fault. <laughs> it's, if you're not being cool enough. It is, it's, it's true, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, and it was just so rare to see somebody who came from a different tradition working alongside those kind of people, you know. And that when his like are gone, presumably that's gone with it. That whole form of entertainment, which is, I communicate with you, I make you happy, I make you sad, I try and tell you a story. You know, that, that it has a kind of narrative spine to it. The songs and the evening and the performance is gone. But it's, it's a bit like the, if there's a parallel, the, the best DJs, and they'd always say it themselves, it's a terrible cliche, they, they feel as though they're speaking to this one person. And that the, the, the DJs that are the least effective on the radio are the ones that appear to be working either with a gang around them, a uh, very voluble kind yeah. of zoo radio format, and they're working towards a mass audience, as if they're talking to a mass audience. The best DJs are, are those kind of late-night voices speaking just to you, yeah. alone in your car, alone yeah. in your room. Yeah. And he's, he's got that. He's a fantastic guy. It's, it's just, it was an extraordinary thing to see, and we shall, shall not see his like No, again. absolutely. Talking to people whose like we shall not see again, Bert Jansch. Oh, I, I know, I know. He's been pleased, ill for a while. He's been very ill, but I was pleased to see, um, again, what, um, you know, what, what, how much coverage there was, actually. It was very nice to see. And they even had Robert, Pe- Robert Peston on, do you remember, on, 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 on Eddie on the air with Eddie Mayer. Extraordinary to hear him talking about uh, Bert Jansch. Just a huge fan. Um, you do wonder where all these fans come from, do you? I, what, you mean they've well, been, I kind been, of, you know, when these, quiet? When these people die, there is such an outpouring of kind of, um, you know, respect from all sorts of people you never expect that you think to yourself, why didn't their last record sell? <laughs> you know, well, I, no, I don't know if I... You can't expect people to carry on buying every record, but you actually made innumerable solo albums, you know, and his first records were absolutely magnificent, and that has been a considerable tail-off, I think. And his, uh, you know, his real impact was in, you know, in, in the early 60s. But, I mean, people react when somebody dies on a personal level because it's that little moment. that I mean, I, I had the... I remember going to see with my, with my then-girlfriend, Penny Cotter. We hitchhiked uh, to Manchester. Penny Cotter. Penny Cotter. We were writing that down for I have written, written down Penny Cotter. Because we've never done oh, this on the podcast. Lord. It's the Deirdre Birchall test. It is the Deirdre and I'm going to take a short detail to explain this. The Deirdre Birchall test. Does anybody out there know? Does the name Deirdre Birchall ring bells for anybody? I'm sure it will. Because the likely lads used to talk about the girl that they'd both gone out with at primary school, or they both fancied at primary school, as Deirdre Birchall. Yeah. Which is just a brilliant name. And my theory... You can't make it up. It's my a real theory name. is that the names of your first girlfriends or boyfriends... Yeah. Always sound completely uninventable. Yeah. Well, yeah? Penny Cotter was my friend. Penny Cotter. Friend. Jane Spurrier. Go on, Mike. You didn't go out with Spurrier. <laughs> <laughs> no! Go on. Wait, I'm going to say this well, I didn't actually go out with her, but I certainly fancied her when I was a very little boy. And her name was Sally Perigo. <laughs> That's really <laughs> This Perry sounds like an Sally, <laughs> Sally yeah. Perigo, Jane Spurrier, Penny Cotter. Penny Cotter. Listen, <laughs> if you're going to a dinner party this weekend and the conversation lapsing at any point, just yeah. go round the table. Say, yeah. name of first boyfriend or girlfriend. You can't make it, it up. It, well, you cannot yeah. make it up. It's Deirdre Birchall. Anyway, sorry. Penny Cotter. And if, you, if one of those people around the table is Sally Perigo, tell her that Mike's still holding a <laughs> burning can. <laughs>
There, moving on. No, but Jet Penny and I were absolutely devoted to uh, the early Bert Jansch, the first two records, you know, and uh, and we hitchhiked to Manchester, which seemed a really long way from Fleet in Hampshire, uh, to go and see him, I think, play at at the Free Trade Hall. And he was this with him in about 1970, I suppose, one or two or something. And this was, it was so funny, it was a picture of him in the Times, I think, and it reminded me so much of what he used to look like then. He always used to wear awful old trainers, lots of gym shoes, and he was solo, and he always had three or four cans of beer, and then two little tiny glasses of scotch, oh and God. an ashtray, <laughs> yeah, and, and not one, day, but two packets of Rothmans, <laughs> and he would sit on stage, you'd come on with a cigarette. Actually, poor old chap. I think there might have been a contributing factor to his death, actually. But, but he came up with a cigarette in his mouth um, with all these drinks. And rather like the Dave Allen show, someone would run along at some point, top up his drinks. And you just think, how stoned is this guy when he's on stage? He I must have been very, my, very drunk. You know? my, have I told you about wonderful. my wedding photographs and the cigarettes? Uh, what, you're, you're, oh, yes, the, each well, well, pocket when of your... I, we got married, I smoked. And in those days, you know, people smoked a lot, 20, 30 a day or whatever. And so on your wedding day, you were expected to smoke even more. Well, high stress day. High stress. More nervous. And so I had I bought two packets of Marlboro, and in my suit, which is buttoned up in the wedding photographs, you can distinctly make out in the pockets of the jacket one one little carton here on the right, and another little carton there on the left. It was the idea that I couldn't. Again, it'd be terrible if I got down to the last few cigarettes. You you don't want to be coming out of the church and patting your pockets. (laughs) Oh no. Rushing off to the corner shop, well, uh, for the photos. So, listen, Bert Yansh came up in another context, Mike, mm. because this morning somebody got in touch with me and asked uh, what was the appropriate way to pronounce the uh, the name of the centerfold hitmakers. That's uh, right. The Jay Giles band, and obviously he didn't know whether it was Jay Giles or Jay Giles. Oh, right. It is Jay Giles. I, I know this for a fact because I met Jay John Giles, right. as he's called. But I asked for for further ones, Mike. Yeah. Have well, we got that, some further ones? Was, now, um, have you got the appropriate pronunciation? I do. I have. Mike, it should be yeah. made absolutely clear. Of course, is our fantastic production editor, who's the one who who, who oh. calls us yeah. on, on, on on press day and says, "Are you absolutely sure?" That so he's in the charge of, of pronunciation, and he's well, in charge of pronunciation, spelling, and legal. Yeah. I know. What a oh my God, thank God you made me take that legal out of my... Oh, <laughs> all right, all right, I'm not right, going right. to repeat. Really but anyway, <laughs> go on. Same about the other one, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so that was Jim Woodhead who asked about Jay Giles. Um, but it's Jay, Jay Giles. Giles yeah, yeah. As, it, as we know it is now. But um, yeah, the Archie V um, queried Damon Albarn, which I'm surprised, really. I, I don't know how else you pronounce that. Albarn? Albarn, I suppose. Oh, it's Albarn. Yeah. She's Albarn. It's got to be, hasn't it? Yeah. Yes. You've met De- him, haven't Demon Albarn. Like, yeah. Demon Albarn, as they <laughs> yes, probably call him hilariously at Select. <laughs> yeah. The Certainly same people used to call Simply Red, Amply Fed. That's <laughs> nice, isn't it? That's nice. Oh, dear. Moving Hero on. Oh, dear. Right. So, so this one is... Gen- I, I, would, I, I needed instruction for this one. It's uh, Lockified has inquired how you pronounce... Um, Wingway Malmstein. Oh, it's Ingwe Malmstein, Is it Ingwe? Ingwe Malmstein. Oh, OK. I think, I think so. you might be right. Oh, Ingwe. Well, well, yeah, so we need Fraser Malmstein. Yeah. We need Fraser for anything involving a loud guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who else you got? Well, that, that tells me. Uh, well, J.K. Connolly wanted to know how you pronounce um, Mary Gaucher. It's, well, it is Gaucher, but spelled G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R. Very so you might, you might yeah. um, you know, naturally just go Gauthier, but it's the not old, Gaucher. The old uh, school teacher in Dave Hepworth comes out on occasions like this, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you can tell that Dave has been a school teacher. And I like it very much, Dave. It's a slightly <laughs> schoolmasterly uh, tone. Quite right. It is Gaucher. <laughs> yeah, See me later, Perkins. Yes. Yeah, so, um, Have you finished? Yeah, no, I haven't. <laughs> 
Oh, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> See me later. We can continue this at lunch hour. <laughs> I've got all day. Yes. Go I'm standing right. in the corner and... I've got books to mark. Ah! <laughs> You've done this before. I've done Many this before. Many times, that's really fun. Yeah, right. I've got books okay. to mark. One of yours. You won't be getting back here. I won't be pleased. Yeah. 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 So why don't you share it with the whole class, Mark? <laughs> Something to share. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Right, so uh, J.K. Connolly um, uh, suggested Bill Frizzell. It must be Frizzell. It must be Frizzell. Bill yeah. Frizzell. Yeah. With a sort of, yeah. yeah, the American sort of emphasis yeah. on the final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consonant, yeah. Uh, so then, uh, Sasha Ward asked about John Mc- McVie. It's got to be John McVie out of Fleetwood yeah, Mac. He, he said, McVeigh, could it be John McVie? It's McVie. No, it's no, John McVie. Um, and then Ed Stern's come up with a couple, and, and he, he sort of obviously um, sort of caught out with these uh, umlauts, which appear on Huskadu. Right. And uh, Amon Dool. So, so it's Huskadu, is it? Huskadu, I think. The sort of, yeah, the this sort of Huskadu. Huskadu. Um, now they were both used, yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Uh, Amon Dool, I think that must be right. Amon Dool. Dool. Yeah, yeah you've got two sets of umlauts. Yeah, yeah. Is it two sets of umlauts? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, the double umlauts. Well, it was yeah. a long period when they didn't get rid about the press because no one had the technology to get the right number of, the right sort of... That's uh, right. Uh, it yeah. was a lot simpler yeah. in the day of, days of Freddie and the Dreamers, wasn't it? It's so much. You didn't have <laughs> Is it Freddie Ampersand, the Dreamers? What <laughs> 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 did you see you say? Is it Freddie I.E.? Or is it Freddie... Motorhead, I don't know. Motorhead, that's right, yes. It actually came back to Bert Janch. That's interesting because apparently he himself pronounced it Bert Janch. That's just being awkward. And I immediately then started going around, like when John Cleese became John Cleese. Oh, yes. And then I, I thought, I suppose I'll have to go around being a bit ahead of the game here and talking about John Cleese. <laughs> and then I thought, actually, nobody's saying, not even John you Cleese. Say that. That's right. That's right yeah. But actually, somebody else pointed out this morning on this thread that uh, Elvis Presley, it's Elvis Presley. Is he? Even though it's only one S. The no, conventional no, pronunciation in the south, the southern states of America for a thing like that was Presley. No, really? Yeah. And just got... We turned it into a notional Z, Z. didn't we, really? Yes. It yeah. really. So if you've got any more of those, send them in. Uh, I'll discuss them on the website, webmagazine.co.uk. Any other business? Have we finished? Yes, there is. I'd very much like to. I've only just got a copy of it myself. I'm keenly turning the pages now, just back, hot off the presses, the new edition of Word Magazine, with a cover that I have to say... 70s, how good is that? It's an award winning cover. It's, it's a marvellous I'm not going to tell you. It's not a man with a moustache. No, it's not a beard. It's not a man with a beard. Uh, it's it's, a it's just a marvellous, marvellous illustration by a very talented illustrator. How's it's it man sitting in the in the chair yeah. of Jim Royal at the Royal That's Family. That's right, basically. based on that. Reading I love a, the I'll give, you, give you a clue. He's looking grumpy and he's got a copy of Musical Exp- New Musical Express from the 1970s. And their headline is Big Slade Tour, <laughs> and then Jethro Shock. Yeah, so and I that's think the mug is But actually, uh, flicking Man through, City, this does it? look a very, very strong, very packed issue. So do go out, please. So that, have a look. And if you're a subscriber, Thursday. Thursday. if you're, if you're a subscriber, you begin the copy this weekend, probably. Hopefully, or maybe Monday. And uh, and don't forget, in future, if you want to continue receiving the full, unadulterated podcast. Or 45 minutes or whatever, you've got to go to wordpodcast.co.uk and put in your subscription details, which you'll find on the uh, address label of your subscription issue, which will be getting very soon. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent every month. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 